The only thing I can think of that was predictable about our Lord in the days of his flesh was that uh, he was utterly unpredictable. He was always doing things that uh, surprised and alarmed his disciples. They never knew what he was going to do next. One thing for sure, following the Lord back then was not uh, dull. It was always exciting. Dorothy Sayers, uh, about 40 years ago, wrote a book called Creed or Chaos. The point of the title is that uh, if we want to keep society stable, we need to go back to the Christian creeds, and specifically the uh, statements about the person of Christ. There are either the creeds or there's chaos. And in her opening chapter, which she entitles The Greatest Drama Ever Told, she... uh, she has a description of Christ that I think is one of, one of the most remarkable things written about him. It's rather lengthy, but I want to read part of it for you as introduction to the passage that we'll study this morning. She writes, The people who hanged Jesus, never to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently paired the, the claws of the Lion of Judah and cert- certified him meek and mild. To those who knew him, however, he in no way suggested a milk-and-water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. True, he was tender to the unfortunate, patient with honest inquirers, and humble before heaven. But he insulted respectable clergymen by calling them hypocrites. He referred to King Herod as that fox. He went to parties in disreputable company and was looked upon as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. He assaulted indignant tradesmen and threw them and their belongings out of the temple. He drove a coach and horses through a number of sacrosanct and hoary regulations. He cured diseases by any means that came handy with a shocking casualness in the matter of other people's pigs and property. He showed no proper deference for wealth or social position. When confronted with neat dialectical traps, he displayed a paradoxical humor that affronted serious-minded people, and he retorted by asking disagreeably searching questions that could not be answered by rule of thumb. He was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime, and if he was God, there can be nothing dull about God either. That's a remarkable statement, I think, about our Lord. And the passage which we want to look at this morning is another illustration that there's nothing boring about Jesus. Chapter 2, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse, verse 12. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum. The this refers to the event that's described in the paragraph that, that precedes. It's the story of the changing of water into wine at Cana of Galilee. And we're told that after this uh, event, he went down to Capernaum, a little city on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and that became his hometown. According to the gospel writers, that was his own city from that point on, this little town that was named for the prophet uh, Nahum. That's where Peter and Andrew lived. That's where Matthew lived. That's where the good centurion lived. And that became his headquarters. 
Interesting that the Jews, uh, the rabbis, after Jesus' day, always referred to Capernaum as the home of heresy because they knew that was Jesus' hometown from this point on. He and his mother were told, and his disciples, there were six now of, of the disciples who were following Jesus, and there they stayed a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We would say down because he went south. They said up because it was uphill to Jerusalem. But the Passover was one of, of several obligatory feasts in Israel. These were times when every Jewish male, women, children, and slaves were excluded, but every Jewish male had to make an appearance at the temple and leave a temple tithe, which was used for the support of the priests, and to make sacrifice on the day of, of Passover. So well in advance, this, this was by far the most important feast of the Jews. So well in advance, they made preparation. They uh, prepared the roads so that it would be easier uh, for pilgrims to travel. They whitewashed uh, the graves so that uh, pilgrims wouldn't inadvertently touch a tomb and defile themselves. They gathered their animals together, inspected them so that they would have, uh, have a spotless lamb to sacrifice. And uh, they got their money together for the temple tax. And we're told that Jesus and his disciples went down to Jerusalem. He had been there before as we know, as, as a child. But this was his, his first appearance that we know anything about as an adult at the temple in Jerusalem on, on the Passover. There are at least three Passover observances that are described in the book of John. This was the first of three, and all of them were important. Here in chapter 2, in chapter 6, and in chapter 13, he went down to Jerusalem for the feast. We're told that, that when he arrived, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. The all refers to the people who were selling and were exchanging money. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple along with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. The word that's translated merchandise in our texts is the passage from we, uh, is the word from which we get our term emporium, place for buying and selling. Now, we need to understand that there was nothing wrong with exchanging money in the temple precincts, nor was there anything wrong with selling animals. That wasn't the problem. Jews came from all over the world to sacrifice uh, at the Feast of Passover. We're told that as many as two million Jews were gathered in Jerusalem at this time. And they came from all over the ancient world. So it would be very difficult for them to bring animals requiring them to purchase them when they arrived there at the, at the temple. Furthermore, we're not really told that they were selling animals within the temple proper. The word that John uses refers to the temple precincts. And uh, the later rabbis tell us that the Mount of Olives was turned into a bazaar and they sold animals there and just to the south of the temple 
area, there was a sheep market where they, the sheep could be purified and also they could be purchased there. So there was nothing wrong with selling the animals. Furthermore, there was nothing wrong with exchanging money because they came from all over the world. They had the currency of their, of their countries. They came with uh, Persian and Egyptian and Tyrian and Grecian money, and they, they had to exchange it for, uh, for Israeli shekels. Just as you go to Israel today, you can't purchase much with dollars. You have to exchange your money. So uh, that was all right. These were duly qualified, accredited money changers. Some 30 days before, they were given permission to set up their stalls, and they began to get everything ready for this, for this great feast. The problem was not that they were exchanging money, nor that they were buying and selling animals. The problem is that Jewish officialdom was ripping off the people. We know that not only from Scripture, but from later comments of the rabbis. The bazaar was owned by the sons of Annas, who was the high priest or had been the high priest. And uh, they were making a great deal of money out of these transactions. They were charging inflated prices for the animals, much more than, than you would have to pay for an animal that you purchased some other place. And the exchange rates were exorbitant. Someone has estimated that at every Passover, they made the equivalent of today's million dollars that all went into the temple coffers to line the pockets of mostly of Anna's family. So they're cheating the people. Now, if you read the synoptics, that is, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those writers put the story of the cleansing of the temple at the very end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, his purifying the temple was a stride that broke the camel's back that led to his crucifixion. They began to conspire immediately to crucify him after he purified the temple. John puts it at the very beginning. So there were two cleansings, not one. They didn't get their history mixed up. Jesus purified the temple twice. Once at the very beginning of his ministry, this first appearance in Jerusalem as an adult, and then at the very end of his ministry. So it must be very important, very important. Rarely do the gospel writers uh, record that Jesus did something twice. But here's an event that took place twice, so it must be very, very important. The second time Jesus purified the temple, he said to the Jewish officials, and I need to say here that whenever John talks about Jews, he's not talking about the common garden variety Israelite of that time, the, the, the Jew on the street, the man on the street talking about the officials, the temple officials. Those were the ones that were corrupt. That's why the Essenes had left Jerusalem and gone down, or at least one sect of the Essenes had gone down to the Dead Sea to get away from the corruption of the, of the clergy in Jerusalem. It was the clergy that was corrupt. The people were hungering for God. They were walking the streets looking for God. It was the clergy that was suppressing them and ripping them off spiritually as well as, as materially. Jesus said the second time he cleansed the temple, this house, my father's house, was intended to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. You're robbing people instead of giving. You're, you're, you're trying to make money off these people. You're not serving. You're being served. That was the problem, you see. And that's why he had to purify the temple twice. Now, I want you to understand that when Jesus saw this going on, he got very, very angry. He didn't walk into the temple in, in some limp wrist fashion and say, you, you boys shouldn't be doing this. He was very angry, very methodical about the way he went about uh, 
driving them out of the temple. He took, uh, took some pieces of rope and he plaited together a whip. He had fire in his eye. He was angry. Now, the passage doesn't actually say he hit anyone with the whip, but I'll tell you, if you or I had been sitting there behind one of those tables and he walked into the temple and we saw the white-hot wrath on his face, saw his eyes ablaze and a whip up in the air, and he tipped the table over and kicked the stool out from under us, it wouldn't matter whether he hit us or not. We'd take to our heels. He was mad. Now, you, you see, there can be nothing wrong with anger per se because Jesus never sinned. This was righteous indignation. He was enraged because he cared about people. People were being hurt. They came to the temple to find God, and they were being driven away. It's significant that in the second cleansing of the temple, after he purified it, the gospel writers, the synoptic writers tell us that the lame and the blind flocked to him, and the little children ran through the temple shouting and praising God because he had turned the temple back to what it was intended to be. But, but that wasn't happening when Jesus walked into the temple. They weren't helping people to draw near to God. They were driving them away. And because he cared about people, he was enraged. See, and our, our anger is almost always selfish. It's based upon either our feelings of insecurity or our frustration or our ability to, inability to control people or control circumstances. And so we get mad. Mostly we get mad because we're impotent. But Jesus was mad because he cared. See, with us... Love and, and wrath are somewhat divided. We can't be wrathful and loving at the same time. But Jesus could. He could be both loving and angry at one in the, in the same time because he cared about people. And when people's rights were being defrauded, they were being taken away, he got angry. There, there are times that we ought to get angry. If we don't get angry, it indicates we don't care. I've mentioned before the the dear fellow that came to see me some years ago, and I know that all of you have heard this story at least once, but it illustrates my point. He, he said, a terrible thing happened last night. I saw my wife in the arms of my neighbor. What should I do? I said, what should you do? He was just a little bit of a fellow. I said, you go out to your garage and get a two-by-four about four and a half feet long and go over and knock on your neighbor's door and say, if you ever lay a hand on my wife again, I'm going to put a fork knot on your head. And he said, that's not Christian. I said, oh, yes, it is. That will do more for your relationship to your wife than anything else. You'll know she cares about her. You care about her. She doesn't think you do. Certain things ought to outrage us if our mates are unfaithful to us. We ought to be outraged because we care. And if we don't care, if we don't get mad, in any case, we don't care. The Lord cared. And it made him mad. And he laid a whip to these people. This is the wrath of God. Some people read the Old Testament and they say, well, that's, that's where you find the wrath of God. The New Testament is all full of love and grace. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I don't see anything of gentle Jesus, meek and mild in this story. I see the wrath of God on his face, the white, hot anger of God against sin because he cared that people were being ripped off and harmed. 
It mattered to him. And so he did something about it. John tells us that later uh, his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. That's a quotation from Psalm 69. David said that. David loved God's house. He wanted to get the ark back up to, to Zion. And he wanted to build a house for God. And that zeal for the house of God consumed him. And uh, we can take these psalms, almost all of them, and put them in Jesus' mouth because they were said prophetically. It was a prediction. What was true of David was true of, of Messiah. David was sort of a down payment on the Messiah who was to come. His life historically prefigured the coming of Christ. And the disciples remembered. David said that. Messiah will say that. Zeal for thy house will consume me. That's what got him upset. He was burned up by his zeal for God's house and for God's people. Now, it's interesting to me that the Jews uh, didn't raise a hand in protest. They didn't say a thing about what he was doing. They saw his lack of moral ambivalence. He was convinced that he was right, and their own hearts condemned them. They knew that they were wrong. And by the way, it's interesting that somewhat later, the Jews themselves got sick of this practice, and they threw all the money changers out just before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., so this was a corruption that even the common people saw. It wasn't just Jesus who realized what was going on. And these leaders, the clergy, came to, to Jesus and they, 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 they couldn't resist what he was doing. They couldn't think of any excuse. All they could ask was, was the basis of his authority. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? In other words, what's your basis of authority? It happened again the second time he cleansed the temple. They asked the same question. He gave a different answer that time. His answer this time in verse 19 is, is this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's characteristic of Jesus to give these enigmatic responses to people who didn't want the truth anyway. It's designed to smoke out those that weren't really looking for truth. Destroy this temple. And, and here he uses a different word for temple than John has used in the passage up to this point. He's referring now not to the temple precincts, but to the sanctuary itself. The holy place. Temple proper. Just destroy this temple. And in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? In 20 B.C., Herod began to beautify and enlarge the temple that the ex... The, repatriated Jews had begun to build. And uh, he'd been working on it now for 46 years. It was not yet complete. It wasn't completed until shortly before it was destroyed in 70 A.D. It was still under construction. They say, 46 years it took to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was speaking metaphorically. He wasn't talking about the building that they could see. Out there, he was talking about his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture. And the word was Jesus had spoken. The word that he had spoken is that if you'll destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it back up. Scripture is the Old Testament scripture. It's the only scripture they had that refers to the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ over and over again. Isaiah 53 says, after his death, he will see light. He'll see his offspring 
the resurrection. Psalm 16 says that, that God will not permit his Holy One to see corruption. It's the resurrection. It's all through the Old Testament. So they remembered the Scripture. And they remembered what Jesus said. They put two and two together. And they realized he was talking about his body, not about the temple. To rebuild the temple would be an architectural impossibility. To rebuild his human body was an even greater miracle. Put it to death, he's saying, and I'll still triumph. The point that he's making is that he's irrepressible. He's unstoppable. Kill me, and it won't do any good. I'm going to triumph in the end. Now, what what can we learn from this passage? And we've all read it, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it. What? What's the meaning of it? What's the significance of it for today? Well, first I want to remind you the purpose for which the temple was built. It was built as a place of worship. It was a, it was a place where people from all nations could gather and find God. The Old Testament is basically a missionary book. Missions didn't start with Acts 1.8. It begins in Genesis 3 after the fall. God appointed a nation to bless the world. He wanted to reach out through one group of people and and bring in everybody else in in the world. That's why the temple was built, as a place where you could come and and draw near to God and and worship Him and learn to love Him. But throughout Israel's history, they kept prostituting the purpose of the body. Of the temple, rather. Instead of using the temple as a place to find God, they used it as a place to aggrandize themselves. They perverted and distorted the use of the temple. In every case. It's true of the first temple, the one that Solomon built. Worship there became more and more decadent until in the end God had to destroy it. It became a place of idol worship. In the book of Ezekiel, there's, a, there's an amazing story told about Ezekiel. He had a vision one night, and in this vision, he was transported over to Jerusalem. He's living in, in Babylon with the exiles. He was taken over to Jerusalem in the vision. He's told to dig, in the hole, dig a hole in the wall and go inside. So he went into the inner sanctum, and he saw priests in there doing terrible things, worshiping the sun, worshiping false gods, the Baals, the Ashtaroth. And... Uh, uh, Ezekiel looked up and he saw the glory, the Shekinah, the, 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 the cloud that was over the holy place, which represented God's presence there, began to drift away from the temple. It must have been horrifying to him. It, it had always been there from the very beginning. It was the cloud that was over the, the Holy of Holies in the, in the little tent in the wilderness. And then when Solomon built his temple, the, the cloud came to rest over the ark in the, in the most holy place. And Ezekiel saw it begin to leave, as though reluctant to go, but it drifted over toward the walls of the temple and then lingered there as though reluctant to go any further. And then finally it went down through the Kidron Valley and up the other side to the top of the Mount of Olives and disappeared. The glory was gone. The temple was empty. And a few years later, the Babylonians destroyed it, leveled it. That temple was rebuilt, and that was the temple to which Jesus came temple that he purified. He purified it twice. And then he get the message. And then one day he, he went over on the west slope 
of the Mount of Olives, and he sat down and he wept. And he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone those that God sends to you, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under its wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left to you empty. And you won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He walked out of that temple. He was the glory of God incarnate. And he walked out of that temple. He said, You'll never see me again until you acknowledge me as your Messiah. The house is empty. Ichabod, no glory. And in 70 A.D., Titus, the Roman general, and his four legions destroyed that that temple, sacked it, burned it to the ground. A bit later, Hadrian, the emperor, built a temple to Jupiter there. And today there's an Islamic mosque on the, on the site. The glory is gone. No temple there. Because they had missed the point of the temple. The temple was a place where people could come and find God, and they abused that privilege, and they used the temple for their own personal gain. And so the glory departed. Now, we have a temple as well, you and I. And it's not around the world in Jerusalem. And uh, it's not located down here on Cole Avenue. And it's not this building right here. You are the temple of God. Both collectively and individually. We as as a body of believers as well as Christians around the world, compose the temple of God. And he lives, this is his house. It's people. It's not buildings. It's not mortar and brick. It's people in whom he lives. And he lives in you individually. On the front of your bulletin is uh, the passage from 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know, Paul says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. Let the glory of God be shown in your body. That's the temple today. Did did you realize that? Have you ever thought about that? Paul says, don't you know? Aren't you aware of that? The problem in those days, uh, the reason he wrote 1 Corinthians 6, or the, the point he's trying to make in 1 Corinthians 6, is that they were using their bodies for sexual misadventures of various kinds and They were involved in all kinds of sensual, sexual things that were wrong. And he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of God? What are you doing to yourself? That's a sanctuary. And what are you doing to him? Don't you realize what your body is for? Have you ever thought about that? That's what your body is for. It's designed to be a sanctuary for God. I mean, here this misshapen thing is, you know, we look at it, and it doesn't look like much on the outside but it's designed to be a holy place for God. He resides in the human spirit. When Jesus went through Samaria, we're going to talk about this passage in a few weeks, and he had the the well-known conversation with the woman at at the well. She said, you're a prophet, tell me, should we worship down in Jerusalem where you Jews worship, or should we worship up here at Mount Gerizim where Samaritans have always worshipped? Tell us, where should we worship? Jesus said, in effect, doesn't make any difference. You can worship down there. You can worship 
Up there, you know, you could worship anywhere you want to because those who worship God must worship Him in spirit, that is, in the human spirit, not in a building, but in the human spirit, in the heart of man, and in truth. In other words, that little tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple that Solomon built, the temple that Herod built, were all pictures of a greater reality. The great reality is that our bodies are designed to be temples for God, holy places, sanctuaries, in which he can live, and we can worship him there. Doesn't that give dignity and worth to your body? As ugly as it may be. Or as beautiful as it may be on the outside. Because, you see, it doesn't matter what the outside looks like. It's what he's going to make out of the inside. I I always think of that... The tent in the wilderness, because it was ugly on the outside. It was made out of animal skins. It wasn't anything to look at, but when you went inside, it was beautiful. Embroidered work on the walls. What's the point? That's what God wants to make out of the inner man and the inner woman. He wants to take the ugliness of your life and turn it into a sanctuary, a place where He can dwell. He'll take anybody. He'll come to live in anyone, anybody. Doesn't matter. Be a murderer, can be a prostitute, or a prude. You can be a swindler or a snob. Doesn't make any difference what you are. God wants to come live in your body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that? Anyone who comes to Him can make a temple out of your life. Out of your body. It's what your body's for. It's why it was created the way it was made. Paul says, We have this treasure, which is Christ Himself, in earthen vessels in this body. We're we're designed to be temples to hold Him. He'll come into any body. But when He gets inside, He won't put up with a lot of clutter and corruption. Because he wants to make it beautiful. So he'll begin to point out things in our life that we need to throw out. He doesn't overwhelm us, but little by little he'll point to things that need to be dealt with and and we have to start pitching them out because they're harmful. No matter how fun they may be, they're harmful. They're defiling. So he wants them out. So he begins to put his finger on these things. Now he's always very patient, very kind. Takes his time. He's not in a hurry doesn't overwhelm us. He's our friend. He moves in alongside. He loves us. He wants to help us rid, rid ourselves of these, of these things that, that are defiling us. And, and, and we may resist it at times. Sometimes it's hurtful to throw these things out because we're afraid. And, and for a while, he, won't, he doesn't seem to offer much resistance in return. We're resisting him. But we don't sense much resistance to him, from him. So we go on our happy, carefree, non-Christian way, living with it, putting up with our sinful habits, thinking that we're getting away with it. And suddenly, he appears in his temple. We turn around, and there he is. His eyes are ablaze, and his whip is raised. And we begin to feel the lash. And he seems to have become our enemy. He is not. He's still our friend, but he seems to be our enemy. That's the wrath of God being manifest against the sin in in our life. 
Now let me assure you, if, if you're cooperating with the Lord in this process, if you're, if you're dealing with sin as he, as he points it out, then He'll never raise the whip against you, even if you're struggling and failing. We have to realize that, that sin has affected us much more deeply than we think, certainly much more deeply than we like to admit. Sin does not merely affect our will, it's, it affects our body, our minds, our emotions, our habits. We're deeply affected by sin, and change, therefore, is hard. There's no, you can't make a decision necessarily to change. And change is harder than that. It takes time. And some, some areas of our life we will struggle with until we, we see the Lord. But you see, that the, what the Lord is looking for is the attitude of heart. Do we want to change? Are we aligned with Him? Are we willing to let Him work to rid ourselves of these sins? That's what He looks for. And as long as our attitude is one of wanting to change, He's our friend. It's when we hold out. It's when we read pornography when we know it's wrong. It's when we're unfaithful to our wives or husbands and deliberately unfaithful and continuing to pursue a course that's ungodly or unchaste. It's when we refuse to forgive someone that's wronged us. It's then that we begin to feel the lash. But we need to realize that the lash is there to purify. The disciples must have remembered as Jesus began to purify the temple, the words of Malachi, one of Israel's last prophets, Malachi said that the Lord himself will come suddenly to his temple and he will purify the sons of Levi and he will turn them to righteousness. You see, that's the reason for it all. It may hurt, the lash may hurt, but the purpose is to purify. So don't resist him. Don't hold out making the master of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, this revelation of things as they are. We, we need to understand, Lord, why we seem to, to be in pain and hurt at times. We need to understand that all of this is is a part of, of your work to purify us and set things right and clean the, the defilement out of our lives. Help us to see that ultimately you're not our enemy, but our friend. We need to realize, Lord, that we, we simply cannot any longer compromise. We can't cut corners. We can't refuse to let you deal with sin in our life. We have to be open and honest, and we have to permit you to, to drive these things away. We want that, Lord. We long for it because we want the glory that comes from your, your presence and the full expression of, of your life within us. We want to be pure of heart in heart so we can see and love you and worship you. Grant that to us, Lord. Give us the courage to face into these things that are so hard for us to deal with. 
we're fearful, Lord, because we, we're uncertain of the consequences. We cling to the, the wrong kinds of relationships because the alternative seems to be utter loneliness. And we're deceitful to others because we're afraid that if the truth comes out, things will be much worse than they are. Help us, Lord, to see that, that your designs and your plans for us is all, are ultimately right, that you've made no mistakes, that you're for us, and that it's, our, it's your desire to make our bodies all that they're intended to be, to put them to your intended work, purpose, to be places, that, uh, a place in which you live and manifest your glory. That's our desire, Lord. And so we submit ourselves to you as our Lord and our Master. Come in, Lord, to, to reign and to rule and to make us what you've intended us to be. We ask in Jesus' name.